Well, hey, Chris. Hey, John. I'd like to welcome you and anyone listening to a new episode of the Soul Searching Podcast. Thanks. How about that? Uh, I'll take it. How are you? Feeling pretty good. I'm ready to not just discuss in detail the latest episode of AMC's Breaking Bad spinoff, Better Call Saul, but to compare that show to a classic spinoff that we will choose right now by spinning this desktop globe okay. and allowing you to put your finger down on the globe, landing on one of the many spinoffs whose names have been decoupaged over the names of the cities of the world. Okay, so ready to spin? Here we go. Do you feel lucky? Oh, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess so. We've had okay luck with the, since we got the globe, although as we start running out of episodes, I'm going to wonder if we are going to get any, any of the real, the big classic spinoffs. But anyway, sure, I'll, I'm, I'm feeling lucky. All right, we'll give her a spin. And here we go. Boom. All right, and I'm in the North Atlantic. Uh, I'm not. I'm not on any land. Let me do this again. Here All we right. go. Boom. Okay, Africa, and knots landing. Hmm, that's a real blast from the past. Um, what was that even a spinoff of? That's a spinoff of Dallas. Oh, I guess I thought Knott's Landing was its own show. I don't know if the average podcast listener, like what demographic they they fit into, or if they are old enough to remember Dallas, but Dallas was the hugest primetime soap of my childhood. And yeah, uh, Knott's Landing, if, if I'm correct, was spun off from Dallas a couple of seasons in when it was already a big hit. And I remember because it was kind of a big deal to my sister, who loved Dallas... And would watch it with my maternal grandmother. So they had kind of a, a little fan club going over there for this type of show. Yeah. There was another one unrelated to Dallas called Falcon Crest. Yeah. And then there was Dynasty. Right. Every major network, I think, wanted to have the big hit, glossy family saga that was an ongoing soap opera. Prime time. Right. And I was definitely not into that stuff as a kid. Oh, I was not either. So, folks, you know the drill. I will find a place for you to watch the Knott's Landing pilot somewhere online, and I will post a link to that file in the show notes for this episode. And then you'll be able to follow along with our discussion of Knott's Landing. But for now, I think they really came here to hear us talk about Better Call Saul, Chris. Probably so, since nobody knew we were going to talk about Knott's Landing. We didn't even know. All right. back hey <laughs> <laughs> let me make that noise again just a little more specific sounding like okay hey that's better <laughs> hey so we've watched knots landing and we'll get to that soon we've also watched the newest episode of amc's breaking bad spinoff better call saul and we'll get to that in a second but chris unlike the usual episode where we jump right in today we've got a little bit of business i want to take care of oh Taking care of business. Yes, just like the king said. Um, so first off, I think you can see that I brought with me a, uh, a device that I'm calling the mea culpa horn. Now, this mm. is a horn that I'm going to blow when it's time on the show for us to apologize to our listeners, or maybe to each other, who knows, over maybe something that came up on the show that was handled poorly or something we said that was incorrect or insensitive or anything like that. I just think it's a useful thing in the world today to let people know an apology is coming. So oh, this okay. is the mea culpa horn. All right. All right. Now today, wow. I'm going to blow the mea culpa horn. Now hold on. Wow. That's loud. Yeah. 
Um, because of a mistake we made in the last episode. Now, Chris, you'll remember last week we talked about Better Call Saul, but we also compared it to the Man from Uncle spinoff, The Girl from Uncle. Yeah. And in talking about the cast members of that spinoff, we mentioned that Stephanie Powers played the lead of the show, April Dancer, but her partner, Mark Slate, was played by who? Um, n- Noel um, Harris, Rex Harrison's son. Right, but we said Neil last time. Oh. Which is not a big deal. Neil, Noel, it's an easy mistake. You were looking for the name. I think you remembered it wrong. Then you said it was Neil, and then what annoys me is that I then said Neil Harrison like a thousand times. Okay. Maybe three times, but we can exaggerate that to a thousand. Yes, I did it first, so I will uh, accept the, uh, uh, the responsibility of blowing the horn. Do you want to blow the horn? Sure, sure. It's a, it's on the loud side. Mm-hmm. I I didn't know about this, or I would have brought earplugs. But I'm sorry. I'm sorry to the uh, Harrison estate and anybody who loves his 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 work and his his body of work. Uh, and 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 uh, I'm sure that it was a, a, a terrible ordeal uh, to hear me call him by the wrong name. And I'm I'm. I'm pinching my lips together in the way that you do when you're really sorry. Well, can I say that I don't know if uh, Noel Harrison is even still walking amongst the living? I'm not sure about that. Maybe you could eyeball that while I'm while I'm saying this. Okay. But, um, I, you know, it's not so much to the Harrison family or to Noel Harrison himself that I think we need to apologize. I honestly do have this weird hang-up about if something is out there, even if this show is just for fun, if it's got the sort of patina of something that's meant to be informational i do like for the information in it to be correct and it drives me nuts when i'm listening to a podcast and there's some stupid little mistake that nobody catches and it goes unnoticed Mm -hmm. but i don't know does that kind of thing ever bug you like do you especially coming out of your own mouth do you hate the idea of like a little minor mistake yeah well when it's recorded for posterity you know if i'm just thinking oh yesterday i said somebody's name wrong in a conversation with someone else or whatever uh that's ephemeral and doesn't really matter but yeah to know that it's it's recorded forever and someone might go back and say these two jerks were talking like they knew what they were talking about and uh they had no idea uh i don't like that so yeah i'm glad i'm glad we have the horn now to clear that up and uh, i just looked it up he did die about five years ago okay so fuck him neil noel who cares the other thing i wanted to apologize for was just my own delay in getting the Soul Searching podcast out to you all in a timely fashion this season. I don't want to bore everybody with the reasons, but it's just been a very busy time. We'd love to have them out as close as we can on the heels of the Better Call Saul episode airing, but me wanting to go through and add a little production value and make sure that the edit is nice and tight. It does take a few days. And last week, it was even later than usual coming out, and I apologize. There it is again. To the listeners for the delay. And just in case anyone's skeptical about why it takes me so long to edit an episode in the first place, like why we can't just have the conversation and then just save it and then output it and put it on the internet, I don't know if people realize how much audio processing goes into a podcast. I mean, you don't really see this part up close, Chris, because it's part of the post-production process, but you know I have a system of filters and different EQs and mastering techniques that I run our raw audio through to produce the listenable show that people hear in their earbuds. Yeah. No, I know it it comes out sounding uh, a lot more nice than than it starts out. You know, just so people know what I'm talking about, because it can be very hard to describe, I am going to 
switch off all of the digital processing for just a few seconds of audio so that you can hear the difference. Cool. Subtle as it might be. Yeah. So yeah, this is this is what we're working with. And <laughs> Processing is back on. Now you can hopefully appreciate that we're here. We care about your ears. We care about the mistakes we've made. We're sorry. Yeah. We're moving on. Last little tiny bit of business before we get to Better Call Saul, because I'm dying to talk about this episode with you, Chris, is that we are hoping on a future episode of this podcast to respond to comments, feedback, questions that listeners have for us. So if you would like to be part of that, write us an email at saulsearching at gmail.com or Get to know us on Twitter at Saul underscore searching. Right. Any feedback we get through either of those channels will be up for grabs uh, when we're doing that episode. So I will try to include all the thoughts I can. Okay. So send us your thoughts and questions. And now let's send them our thoughts and questions about the sixth episode of the fourth season of Better Call Saul. This episode was called Pinata, again, for obvious reasons. Right. And um, it was written by Jennifer Hutchison, who is a longtime writer on this show who writes a lot of episodes and has worked her way up from being a production assistant and a writer's assistant on shows like The X-Files, on through Breaking Bad, where she became a writer, to this show where, like I said, she's become an executive producer and one of the main writers of the show. Yeah. And the episode was directed by Andrew Stanton, the Pixar guy who directed WALL-E, Finding Nemo, uh, Finding Dory, I think he co-directed A Bug's Life, and his live-action debut was a flop, but I enjoyed it. It was the movie John Carter. Oh, okay. That's a pretty big director to have working on an episode of uh, of this show. Yeah, and interesting for him career-wise to uh, take a sidestep and just do a, a pretty serious uh, piece of TV. Well, he did do a couple of episodes of Stranger Things last season, I believe. Oh, I guess now I'm trying to think of anything in this show that stood out uh, directing-wise, and uh, most of it seemed like typical, cool-looking Better Call Saul, but certainly it was a novel idea to do the uh, upside-down scene at the end, so maybe we can give him credit for that. Well, let's get into the episode. Um, I guess we will start with Kim. Since she was in the cold open, and, and we did get some sort of character development for her in that, what did you make of that cold open, particularly as it regards to Kim's character and her arc, and, and what you thought maybe it was trying to tell us about her and her relationship with Jimmy? Hmm. Well, I don't know if the point really was to tell us much about her and her relationship to Jimmy. It was nifty to see and to go back to that time again. I mean, you see it throughout the episode. She's looking at Jimmy with this kind of askance look, kind of questioning his choices and his priorities and what he's up to. And in that opening scene, we see it laid out that Jimmy is not uh, Charlie Hustle yet. You know, he's not the guy who's who's wowing the partners with his with his moxie at this point. Right. He's 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 kind of just a goofball. I mean, like a doofus. He doesn't really even understand the case that Kim just explained to him, you know? Right. So to me, that was like, wow, this is really before Jimmy decides that he's going to take anything particularly seriously. And this is Kim already so serious. Like when Jimmy says, that's going to be you someday, looking down the hall at Chuck, she just says, yep. Right. But I thought what it did was it set up a trajectory where I could watch their interactions throughout this episode as all kind of following that dynamic we saw in the beginning. Right. I guess in a way I'm saying nothing huge that's new, but that um, I think more I was just looking at it from Jimmy's point of view 
and seeing it as about Jimmy more than about Kim because uh, we're seeing how he learns that she is impressed by someone who uh, uh, knows the importance of obscure case law and that he sort of tries not to take that to heart for a minute and then takes it to heart and goes into the library and uh, starts to brush up. And uh, to me, that sort of lays out that, um, you know, his whole trajectory into the law is, is uh, could be seen as as something he did to to impress her. Wanting to impress Kim, but also seeing that Kim is doing something to further herself and he's not, you know, that he's the guy who's doing the office Oscar pool. She's on the ball and he's not on the ball. Right. That he just wants to be doing something with his life. Like she's inspiring him both as someone who he wants to impress, but also somebody who's his friend that he just recognizes is is on a track and he's not. Right. Before we move on from the subject of the cold open, I did want to stop and point out one small detail from that uh, scene that could be nothing, frankly, but it also could be uh, a hint or a clue that we are meant to pick up on and enjoy. And it has to do with what Jimmy's doing. You know, he's he's collecting bets for the Oscar pool. Yeah. There's a reference to the film Howard's End. Oh. I don't know that these writers would not notice that. I'm sure there's a lot of reasons why they chose 1993 as the year that this scene would have been taking place. I mean, I'm sure the math checks out. Right. But this was, you know, they did have a few references to movies at the beginning. And just the phrase Howard's End, when I put it in my notes, it, it struck me. And I was like, oh, why is that striking me? Oh, it's because we have a character named Howard on the show. And then later I was like, oh, and he's kind of at his wit's end yeah. or near the end of the firm. Yeah. You could have titled the episode that and it, had to, and it would have had... Two meanings. The story of the current day plotline when we're done with the flashback is very similar to that opening scene in the sense that uh, Kim really is trying to do something very tangible and specific and Jimmy is being cagey with her about what he's doing except that he seems to be very sincerely throwing himself into this dream of the Wexler McGill firm. Kim can tell that he's being squirrely but she doesn't really have time to focus on him too much. Like her attention is divided between her work for Mesa Verde and her uh, pro bono public defender work. So I think at this point she's coming up with this plan, right? To find somebody to take Mesa Verde off her hands to some extent but also to further herself in her career. How, how did you feel that play? Did that play like she had a plan or did it play like something that just evolved over the course of meeting with Schweikert um, and so forth? Well, uh, no, I think she had a plan when she went in to see Schweikert because she was very direct about about saying, you know, how's your banking department and would you like to have one? Um, but what's uh, kind of in question is is exactly what her motivations are. You could say that she just comes up with this totally independent of her thoughts about Jimmy that she is, like you said, she, she wants to be – helping the world, helping people, and she's good at that, and uh, and she just wants Mesa Verde to be taken care of by some assistance so that she can have some money to glide along on. Um, and that's enough reason right there to go into Schweikert and, and propose a, a, a merger. But um, also they've just set up how she looks at Jimmy's sketches late in the night, and that kind of makes me feel like she's saying – Oh boy, he's still very serious about our being a firm, and I still feel like maybe that's not the best, that he's just a little too skeevy of a person to be in business with all the time. And then uh, they show Jimmy and Kim discussing the shrink, and she sees that he's not doing that, and he's not going to 
get over his issues very easily. And then straight away she goes to Schweikert. So I think she has uh, multiple reasons for going there. You, you, one, one could say she, she got out of the, the uh, Jimmy McGill business by, by going to Schweikert. It's a testament to how strong-willed of a character she is that you can feel her judgment of him in that scene where he says he's he's not going to see the shrink. It's like a, a a little door closes in her mind where she's kind of thinking, I'm not counting on him for anything right now. Yeah. He's not doing what he said he would do, and he's being kind of weaselly, and I have my own situation here. And I wondered, did she sort of orchestrate it so that she would go to Schweikart to talk about this issue... And she can go to Jimmy and say they offered me the job of being the head of their banking division without making it clear that she's the one that took it to them because that sounds a heck of a lot more sellable to Jimmy that she got offered this can't-turn-it-down opportunity rather than that she sought out that opportunity as a way of avoiding the Wexler-McGill dream that he has. I, I, I would phrase it more strongly. I would say she lied and said that they offered her the job. I mean, to me, it, when she said it, it was like, well, okay, Kim just uh, pretty much told a big whopper to soften the blow of the dream of Wexler McGill kind of dissolving in that moment. She she says it that way, and we find out at that time, in that at that lunch, that she hasn't told him anything about her public defender work. Um, you know, I, it wasn't clear to me whether or not she had. I thought, oh, they might talk about that every night for all I know, uh, but here it becomes clear that she's been doing this. Uh, for days or a week or whatever, and uh, and and has just kept it a secret from him. And finding that out in the same lunch is uh, pretty kooky and crazy. So, uh, and then he turns around and lies back to her. I think it's a lie. He says, "I've been thinking about criminal law, and you know, I could get one of those bungalows up there." We've just seen uh, his uh, secret list uh, where uh, where he, uh, on the page before the doodles. Uh, where he uh, is thinking about this type of law and that type and the other type, and none of them is criminal law. So I think that he is scrambling to say, yeah, yeah, me too. Uh, let's uh, stay in business together here because uh, it'll be great if I'm doing the same thing as you. I can only compare it to situations I've been in in a relationship where you are more into the other person than they are into you. And there's a point where you feel that. Right. And you can choose to hang around and you can choose to kind of keep trying or you can sort of admit that the other person is telling you something. Um, and I think that Kim knows she's kind of telling Jimmy yeah. this thing and she kind of knows that he's presenting himself as being okay with it when, when, when he's not. And I think for Kim's purposes, she's moving on to whatever this next stage, this next chapter is, but you start keeping things from each other and you start promising things you don't deliver and it's it doesn't take long for it to seem like maybe I don't need to be in this relationship right now. It's an interesting thing. Like, we don't hear them say, I love you, or that kind of shit to each other. Um, but they obviously have such a strong bond. If we're mad at Jimmy for lying and hiding things, we can see that Kim is doing her own version of the same thing. Right. Even if we can see that her motivation might be different, it's still the same kind of no relationship can stand up when both people are hiding things. Right, right. And it hit Jimmy so hard at lunch there that he had to take a break and go back to the kitchen and have a auditory hallucination about the loud knives and chopping <laughs> uh, before he could sort of reset and come back and pretend, you know, everything's great. That's great. Good for you. Go for it. For now, let's table Jimmy and let's talk about 
the Super Lab plotline, which we wondered last time if we were going to see a play-by-play of how the Super Lab was built. Right. And it seems that we are. <laughs> My only hope for this plotline, I guess, is that we will see new characters that are interesting and new new challenges that are interesting for Mike and Gus. So I'm hoping these new German guys they brought in will, will bring us some new story. Well, the only thing they seem to set up with them is that Kai is the troublemaker. And uh, so, yeah, maybe maybe there will be a little story of dealing with him or getting rid of him or sending him home. Or I don't know if it's, I mean, it's such a criminal secret enterprise. Maybe you have to do something worse to him than just sending him home. I thought he was going to get killed last night in front of everybody as an example to everybody. I honestly thought yeah. it was going to be like, okay, we've now's the time. We're going to show people that you don't act this way. Right. I thought he might get fired in that moment at least when you're taking extra time to fill your beer in the first moment of the job. You know, you could do that. A weekend when everybody's buddy buddy, but if it's like here we are in minute one and I'm calling a little meeting and you're gonna stand over there and take everybody's time, I thought they'd at least be like, You're fired, go home. In slow burn town, nothing happens in one episode. Right. Um, but you can just tell that Mike has no no patience for him. So I would not be surprised if where Mike goes this season is he has to kill Kai and that is a turning point for him. You know, right. like a moment that feels more more malevolent or more evil than anything that we've seen him yet do, I guess. Right. right. So I guess the other scene that would uh, need to be dealt with here is is the long monologue that Gus has with Hector in Hector's hospital room. And I do say a long monologue. I, I enjoy Giancarlo Esposito's performance. I enjoy... This idea that Hector would have Gus sitting at his bedside whispering awful things yeah. into his ear. Yeah. Of all the moments you can say, I got nothing new from it. I got zip from this moment. I mean, I don't feel like it even really helped me with Gus's character that much. I knew that he was patient and meticulous and revengeful mm-hmm. <laughs> and and all of that stuff. So to me, it was a very nice scene, a very well shot, well written, well acted scene that kind of felt like a flat line for me when I was watching it. Yeah. I feel a little bad criticizing what is a good scene. Right. We know what happens to both of these guys. We know that there's not a whole lot that can be said between the two of them now. Right, right. I was I was pretty much with you. Um, I liked the story of the Lakuma tree and the Kawati and how it demonstrates Gus's nature uh, from childhood. Uh, I thought it might have gotten a little darker and they would have said, I smothered that Kawadi or something, you know, with my bare hands to to make to to build a little bit upon his uh, evilness. But they didn't quite do that. Um, and so it kind of, though, yeah, I ended up where you did, where it just served to me to say, um, uh, you know, Gus is determined to control Hector's death and not let him die too soon. He's really going to make him suffer and we want to, underline that but it just feels like you've underlined that three or four times so uh i think maybe it's just the maybe the issue is that the story between gus and hector is that they they have a a, a, a three episode story that they're stretching out over these two years or something so they're just like yeah we got to keep this alive but all we can do right now is just say again what's going on you know maybe they're considering uh viewers who have just come in or come in and out or something. And it is cool. It was a cool scene. So, you know, I'm, I'm not mad at it. Maybe it won't be uh, just a one-off moment. Maybe Hector will uh, wake up in the coming episodes and, and make reference to the 
Kaladi or something. I don't know. Or maybe there will be a character that's like torn to pieces by a pack of, of, of Kawatis that Gus has trained to to eat human flesh. <laughs> I feel churlish even even saying that it kind of didn't do much for me. And I bet on a rewatch, it might. You know what? I'm not sure. I'm, I'm an animal person. Uh, I like to think I am, but uh, I don't know the difference between a Kawati and a Kawatamundi. I'd like to look up both of those. What's the difference? Are they almost the same or is one of them much different? I'm pretty sure those are just two names for the same animal. Oh, the exact same? I don't think they're the exact same. Maybe. You want to look it up? Should we look this up and put it in the show? I'll look it up. Yeah, we might as well look it up and put it in the show. Okay, so hang on just a sec. I will look this up. Okay, I'll just wait. <laughs> okay, uh, it seems that Kawati Mundi is just uh, another word for a Kawati. And there's also a musician named Kawati Mundi, but that's neither here nor there. And that was a feature on the show that we we're going to call Neither Here Nor There. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't really talk about Mike going to see Stacy. I kind of think this was a scene that had to happen, and we kind of saw it coming in a way. We knew Mike and Stacy were on good terms later because during Breaking Bad, he's got a relationship with Kaylee. So it was a nice little moment to follow up on Mike's scene with the grief group. Yeah. Um, what I mostly took from this scene as a noteworthy thing was just I like the economy of when she called Mike Pop as a way of letting him know that they can continue and that they can get over this weirdness that's going on between them as they both kind of move on from Maddie. I mean, it is interesting that they're both kind of saying, I'm giving you permission to not think our entire relationship has to be about grieving Maddie. Right. And I think that's a very real thing in grief. Sometimes you and another person can drag each other through it if you're mm. both feeling it so strongly. Yeah. So kind of giving the other person permission to to not bring it up is is a powerful thing. So that's that's a, that's a that's a big moment emotionally even if plot-wise it's sort of it was inevitable uh, right. that it happened. And it did sound kind of like they're telling us, yeah, she'll probably keep going to the thing, but he's probably not going back to the thing. So that gives you a little bit of a a new paradigm. And also the mention of Anita, Mike's friend, who seemed like she could be a love interest at some point and maybe still could be. But the way Mike reacted to Anita's name being brought up, he kind of just shook his head and said, no, I took that as a very strong indication that Mike is now working for Gus and whatever hope he might have had for him and Anita to have any kind of a thing. I think he's either thinking that's not for me. That's not meant for me. I'm on this other track now. I'm in this other path, mm -hmm. this other job. I don't have time for that. But also thinking I'm involved with this crazy drug operation. I can't take a, a nice woman like Anita and drag her into my life if mm. this is what it's going to be. Right. Uh, that's a, that's good insight, I think. But I hadn't even thought of that. I just thought more of it like um, uh, I screwed up and sounded like a jerk. And now I'll just sound more like a jerk if I continue talking. You know, so it, the best bet for everyone is if I'm just like, yeah, s quietly step away and don't bother her again. So that leaves us with Jimmy, our guy Jimmy. We were talking earlier about how in the cold open we see a new side of him in in the sense of almost a very kind of corny moment of, of uh, showing us the moment when he decided to start reading the law books. That does have me wondering, has Jimmy always been more about Kim than we've realized? Mm-hmm. Um, but going into the next scene, yeah, I mean, it really seems like he's smitten and committed and really into both her and this idea of them going into business together, him sketching out the Wexler McGill logo and calling about signs and all of that kind of stuff, uh, feels to me like that 
project-based guy that we know that has to have something in front of him or, or he'll go crazy. So do you think at that moment he was actually focused on that and had left the other stuff behind, was trying not to do the dastardly deeds that are going to get him in trouble or turn him into Saul Goodman? Or do you think all along he was kind of embodying both those things, that he was both trying to fantasize about what happens when he can practice law again, but also, you know, putting his foot on the other side of the law uh, pretty steadily. It's hard to say. Uh, they had me convinced that he uh, was being genuine uh, about uh, stopping the mischief and staying focused on selling phones at the phone store. And when he got beat up, I thought the show was telling me he got beat up and he realizes that this is a stupid game to be in and that he's getting out. He just decided that's enough of that. Uh, but then next episode, he comes right back into uh, selling phones and making making the world safe for him to sell phones. And they, they don't draw a super clear direct line like, see, because Kim did this, he decided to get back into it. Uh, and maybe maybe that's true or maybe we could glean that. But I don't think it 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 uh, shouts it at us. So so, yeah, I don't I don't really know. Maybe he just was going to. Uh, be stick-to-itive all along. How are you feeling as you're watching him in this? Do you have the same kind of fun that I have watching him be bad? Yeah, that's the most fun part of the show, uh, which is also, you know, becomes the frustrating thing in the show where he goes through periods of going in and out of of being a sneaky person. And so uh, if you're making a show about somebody who's sneaky part of the time, that's not as, as, as fun. Um, but uh, I'm with you that they didn't 100% nail down uh, how much of his motivation is from this, how much is from that, and maybe it's just his nature, and maybe, uh, you know, you, you can easily say, well, boy, he really went overboard once he saw that, uh, uh, that she was uh, going on her own career track, uh, but they didn't show that to us in a way that made it feel like a uh, clear connection. Well, he, he actually had quite a journey when you think about it, because at the beginning, we got that little cold open that, again, just just shows us the origin of Charlie Hustle. Uh, then the next time we see him, he's kind of googie-eyed over Kim and the idea of working with her, and he kind of sees her as his savior in some strange way or as the linchpin to his success. And then he gets a blow when he's on the phone calling about signs for their firm and really getting ahead of himself, and you can tell really wanting to have a giant... <laughs> sign um he gets this call from the relative of one of his old clients and i'll just say chris now it's time for me to once again blow the mea culpa horn oh. i know too, is there no way to but we have been all season i guess i have been probably the real perpetrator of this all season referring to jimmy's former client who had the hummels as irene Obviously, thinking about Jimmy's little friend, Irene, from last season. Yes. Even though we met Irene, I think at the end of the first season, mm -hmm. where she was at the bingo game, the big meltdown at the bingo game from season one, which is still one of the best scenes, not just of this show, but I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was in my mind sort of lazily conflating her with the little old lady who has the stair chair and who does not live in Sandpiper, who lives in a house and was one of Jimmy's early elder care clients. Right. But she's the lady with the Hummels, and that yes. is Miss Strauss. Her first name is Geraldine, but Geraldine Strauss is not the same person as Irene Landry. Everything I said about Irene 
you could just replace with the name Geraldine. Right. Um, and it's the kind of thing where if you picture their faces, they're obviously different types. Right. I can totally picture them right now because we saw the commercial with Geraldine on it again last night. And, uh, uh, and, and yeah, they are two different little old ladies. But I went right along with you whenever you would say Irene and her Hummels. That sounded right. And it's just uh, the nature of memory to blur things together. And uh, so uh, I also am sorry. But it seems that they've sort of put the Hummel plotline to bed because in the phone call, we see that, you know, Jimmy's aware of who the Hummels were intended to go to and wondering whether they got them. It doesn't seem like Jimmy is rushing to get over there to steal the Hummels before they get dispersed through her her uh, estate. Right, right. Yeah, it doesn't look like, although certainly you can't help but think that he has that idea and that they could come around next episode and say, oh, he decided to do this. But... Yeah, it seems like it would be so much about Hummels. <laughs> like this this show would become so much about Hummels if we went back and did more Hummel stuff at this point uh, that it seems almost unbelievable. And he's he seems quite uh, concentrated on the, the phone business right now, uh, his own phone business, that is. Uh, so, yeah, probably done with it. Yeah, it seems like they put the Hummels to bed last night, and we can now put to bed the matter of confusing Irene with Geraldine. I'm... Sorry. Ah. All right. You don't have to blow it every time. I like it. So yes, Jimmy got the bad news. Clearly it sent him into a reverie about about his maybe his days as an elder care lawyer. He watched the commercial that Geraldine was in for him. I thought it was very significant that Jimmy seemed more purely emotionally affected by Geraldine's death than he did by Chuck's. Uh, what do you make of that? Uh, well, he seemed emotionally affected by Chuck's death for like 48 hours or something. So I, I'm, I'm, I don't feel too strongly about that. But the interesting little connection that I saw was just that it was kind of nice to see him watching his own commercials uh, like Gene does in the opening of the first episode. That's an interesting little uh, echo. Better Call Saul has been on uh, long enough now that it can call back to itself. Right. That now feels like a million years ago that we saw Gene pull that tape out and watch it. So yeah, talk me through your feelings about the Howard scene. I'd like to know what you thought of what Jimmy's intentions were there. I mean, we know he was picking up a check, but do you think he was sincerely trying to goad Howard into snapping out of his stupor? Or do you think he really doesn't care <laughs> that much and just was stirring shit up? I wasn't sure where his mind was at. Um, it It would make you think that Jimmy cares a lot more about HHM than we would have thought. Um, and also that he's ready to just start bullying Howard makes you think he's more focused on Howard than we would have thought. You know, I would I would have figured that by now, uh, yeah, he's not really still too uh, mad at Howard or hung up on Howard, but he kind of just takes this opportunity to uh, jump on him and make him feel bad. And uh, I wasn't really sure what to make of it. Supposedly, AMC lets them have one F-bomb per season on this show. And uh, they used it last night. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> that was it. And it was great. You really could see that as a scene about what a schlub Howard has become or, or how he's really not taking this with a lot of dignity. But I sort of veered between thinking Jimmy was giving him tough love and speaking the truth and just being a dick. Right, because he starts out, it sounded kind of like, Get out of your rut. You know how to do things. You're good at salesmanship. You can make this, uh, you can keep this ship afloat. Uh, but he immediately is 
like you're losing your hair, you, you're a bad lawyer. You know, it seems tougher than tough love. Yeah, seems like just tough without the love. Right, tough hate. When he found out that there was no Wexler Miguel, it was a little bit like letting him off the leash. So I'm not saying it's Kim's fault. I'm just saying I think we can look at that scene as a, as a flashpoint for what Jimmy's immediate plans would be. Because when he gets the check from Howard, I believe he knew he was going to go and turn that around and buy those phones. And, you know, we see him moving him into the nail salon. And I thought it was funny, just kind of idly, we were wondering last time about why Jimmy was able to store some things in the nail salon, whether he was paying rent or not. And strangely enough, they addressed that specific detail head on in this episode. Right. So Jimmy has been paying rent on the space. And that's that, you know. And I do think that's keeping a toe in his old life to some extent. That That is what we theorized, is that maybe, you know, it's like keeping the apartment across town when you've moved in with somebody. Right. And I like that she got in a good line that just seems like it must apply. You know, it's one of those lines that'll resonate. She said, get rich, quick schemes never work. <laughs> Miss Nguyen. Yeah. And then... I wasn't expecting to see him relate to those punks again. And when it started off seeming like Jimmy's plan was to pay them to just leave him alone, Mm -hmm. that seemed like a weird scheme. And I was ready to think, I don't really like that that's where Jimmy's head is at. But I had no idea it was going to turn into what it turned into. When he finally had to run, I was thinking, okay, so the tracksuit wasn't just a wardrobe change. It actually had some utility in this moment. (laughs) Right, right. Because he was going to be doing some, some running. But as soon as he started running, I thought, okay, this is part of the plan. Oh, absolutely. He came here fully prepared to be ready to do something with these, these guys. Uh, But I didn't know it was going to be as harsh as all that. And it's kind of like his, uh, although, you know, he didn't actually have them uh, beat up, it still was the uh, cruelest, most criminal type of operation that we've seen him run, I think. Yeah, and with such a steely efficiency. He was like a real gangster. I, I don't know that Jimmy's ever been a guy who's gotten his hands dirty with, with real violence. Whether this is connecting to something that's been in his character all along, this this act of revenge was, yeah, it was excessive even if it was very effective. Yeah. <laughs> and it wouldn't have been a surprise to see Saul Goodman behave this way. It was yeah. a little bit of a of a of a jump to see Jimmy doing this. Yes, yes, it definitely was a new a new paradigm. And then we get the reveal of Huel, uh, and the other guy who I was struggling like, oh, am I supposed to recognize this guy? And it also made me wonder, as I often do in moments like that, just is it really wise to remove your mask when you're still just a few feet away from the people that you were hiding your face? Right, from? right. Like, boy, I really got to get this mask off. I can't just walk 12 more feet until we're actually out of the room. I'll just I'll just rely on the fact that they're swinging upside down, facing away from me right now, and that there's a few pinatas between us. <laughs> well, I have only one more thing to say about Better Call Saul, and that is when he's... When Jimmy was talking to the... Chris! No! Uh, what? What? I had to blow the horn. What are you sorry for? I'm really sorry that I interrupted you just now. Oh, my God. I think you just like blowing that horn. Yeah, I do. Uh, Anywho, the final point I wanted to make, I just wanted to mention that I thought was cute, is whenever he talks to the vet, and in this episode he's talking to the vet, and the vet is helping him line up the uh, pinata warehouse, Uh, but the vet can't get off the phone without saying, how's your fish? Are you changing the water every week? Are you not overfeeding it? That's just... uh, uh, sweet to me that the vet really is a uh, a good vet. We've seen in the past that he is on top of everything else, a friend to the animals. He cares about the fish. 
Okay, well here we are, Chris, at the usual point we arrive in the episode where it's time to switch our attentions from the latest episode of Better Call Saul, and we're now going to turn to the spinoff that we chose from the spinoff globe at the beginning of the episode, Uh, a classic show. This show actually was sort of a long-running, in some people's minds, I'm sure, classic show. It was on for 13 or 14 seasons and had 344 episodes. This is Knott's Landing, the Dallas spinoff. Yep. I think maybe like me, you knew the name of it, you knew it was on, you knew the type of primetime soap that it was, but you didn't really watch that type of show, so it was just kind of chugging along in its own little world. I, I only really, as I mentioned earlier, saw these shows playing in my house uh, because my sister really loved them, and, and when I was at my grandmother's house, they tended to watch those shows together. So I didn't have too much of a specific idea as to how these shows actually filled an hour, but I had a very strong idea as to the sorts of actors and the sorts of chills and thrills and spills they try to pack in to uh, every installment, similar to a week's worth of a daytime soap being condensed down to one hour and given much higher production values. And I guess you might say better acting, better writing, everything. I don't know. This show did feel like a big budget show. It felt like at the time that it was made, it was geared to be a big hit. And as I said, it did turn out to be one. Um, What was your knowledge of Knott's Landing before we watched it? Uh, I'm like you. I knew the name of it, but as a kid, I didn't... uh uh, have any regard for uh, regular drama, nighttime soaps, uh, and I still am like that. I feel like for the most part, uh, if it's just set in a regular uh, suburban world, you kind of, for the most part, to get me in, you got to give me some kind of uh, supernatural or uh, sci-fi uh something a little more kooky, something visual, some cool, weird animation, or, as in the case of Better Call Saul, at least give me some some crime stakes and some uh, humor. Um, and shows like Knott's Landing hardly give you any humor in there, and uh, I'm sure they get into some crime stakes on various plot lines, but the, the main thrust is not uh, watching some how somebody's going to uh, subvert the law and, and either get away with it or not. How can you say the show has very little humor in it when you've got Richard Avery with his great party banter like, um, if this is Bernays, what's mayonnaise? <laughs> I did enjoy that as a, that was, uh, for people who didn't watch it, that's one of those times where you need to start the scene by making it sound like someone's ending a joke and the other people are laughing. And almost always I think those are fake punchlines and I think this was a fake punchline. But for some reason, it was a better fake punchline to me. And I did kind of want to point it out as a as a good fake punchline. Well, what made that seem especially fake to me was it was within a scene where you have lots of people breaking down into small groups talking. There's so much tangled soap opera stuff in terms of who's who and how they're related on this show that we probably shouldn't spend too much time parsing it out. But uh, uh, Val's talking to Annie, played by Karen Allen. Uh, which I was not expecting. Marion Ravenwood from the Indiana Jones films. Me neither, but I don't think she's a regular on the show. No, she's not. It said special guest star, yeah. but I could I could imagine that maybe she came back 
Um, anyway, we're getting way off of what I was saying, which is just, yeah, it was it was at the that party at the Avery house where we're kind of just shifting our attention from one group of characters talking to another. And and the way they segue into the second group is we catch the end of something that... that right. That Richard Avery is saying to Gary Ewing, and what made it especially great was Gary Ewing laughing so hard, as though it was a great punchline to a great story. But what I'm saying is, if that's the punchline to the story, how interesting could the story have been? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> that someone was eating something with the Baronez sauce that was not up to snuff. Like this is just mayonnaise, <laughs> or someone was eating that, but that person did not know what those sauces are. Hilariously. Do you think maybe Gary Ewing was fake laughing, or do you think he knew <clears throat> he knew what Baronez was? He was he was talking about me. I may have never had Baronez. I think the person that he's quoting knows what Baronez is. Oh, oh, okay. I know what Baronez is. You've just served me mayonnaise. Yes. Then what's mayonnaise? Okay. And Baronez is a mayonnaise-based <laughs> sauce. So you could argue that if someone gave you uh-huh. mayonnaise and said this is a Baronez, you could be the sort of snob who would say, if this is Baronez. Yeah. This is a very in-depth discussion about Knott's Landing, by the way. But um, <laughs> but yes. No, but Chris, this is the this is what they come to us for. Right. I used to say Bernays because of how it's spelled. It's spelled like Bernays. Uh-huh. But I'm now adopting Richard Avery's pronunciation of Bernays. Yeah, he said Bernays. Um, but yes, you have convinced me that the way that you laid it out, I think you're right. It, this was It kind of was a good entire joke. It wasn't just the end of a joke. You could see it as just a a great diss on someone's Baroness. Annie, maybe tomorrow we could go to the beach, you know, have lunch together. Sure. Annie, I mean it. I look there, I say, if this is Baroness, what's mayonnaise? <laughs> If we give just a brief overview of what the plot is, it's so soapy and it's so like every character is set up to hint at future possible plot lines. It's the first episode of a show that, as I said, ran for over a decade and uh, almost 350 episodes. So there's no way the first episode of the first season is going to have that much storytelling in it as compared to what the show became. So we don't have any idea without looking at super long Wikipedia summaries, what this show actually became or, or how these characters turned out. Yeah. But for the purposes of this pilot, it is triggered by Gary Ewing and his wife, Valine Ewing, moving from Dallas, the titular Dallas, to California to live in this neighborhood that is on a cul-de-sac uh, that where each house has a soap opera couple in it, basically, with their own sort of angle on what that means. You know, there's infidelity, there's uh, prodigal children coming and going, there's uh, drinking, there's, I don't know, there's a guy with a cold who likes to work <laughs> on cars, <laughs> you know? That was odd. Why did they keep pointing out that he had a cold and never got anywhere? Is that going to turn out that he has cancer or something? Well, at the end of the episode, he spread the cold to his wife. So I think that was the oh, gag. Yeah. That she kisses him at the end after we've seen him coughing and sneezing the whole time. And then we hear yeah. her sneeze. She sneezes. I think that that was their cute way of saying, they just had sex in the back of that car. Ha ha ha. And that, that's, that's a weird little way of communicating it to the audience. But yeah, I'm with you. The soap opera rules should be if someone has got a cold, then it's, got, it's because they're going to die. But it seems like maybe they just gave him that as an extra bit of business. Uh, yeah. But who knows? Maybe in the next episode, he coughs up blood or something. I think it was for that weird joke at the end. I was having a hard time figuring out how I was supposed to feel about the various people. Sid uh, Fairgate, the the man with the cold, was a, a big 
source of mystery for me because at certain points he seemed like, oh, he's the dangerous, angry man who uh, uh, has all these problems and has, uh, you know, hits his children and <laughs> yells at his wife and and is falling to pieces here. But at the end, it seemed like maybe we were meant to think he's kind of a, a troubled man trying to do what he can in, in troubled times or something. Uh, I don't know how you felt about him, whether he was seemed kind of like a heavy at certain points and then a guy that we're supposed to view almost heroically, really more of a main character this episode than Gary Ewing, the blonde soap opera handsome guy who came over from Dallas. Like the show is a spinoff about Gary and Valine, but I felt like the Fairgates really came to the fore, uh, Sid and, and Karen and their daughter, Annie. Oh, yeah, they go right into giving them the main uh, thing. And actually, I think even in the opening titles where you see a little uh, graphic shot from above the houses, uh, I think they show them before showing the Ewings, um, where you get a little window in through the roof or whatever. Anyway, um, I thought Sid was supposed to be uh, almost an everyman regular guy, even though he's... Uh, uh, tough and everything that it's just like yep he you see how hard it is to deal with out of control teens and also work on your car you know that's just like man stuff right there was a little moment a little beat early in the show that was just so small it was almost unintentional but it's the kind of thing that that uh that I enjoy anyway just where there was a half a second where they have just had a big blow up in the yard high drama shouting with your out-of-control teenager daughter or whatever, and then right afterwards, instead of having the usual soap opera reaction from Sid of like, now we're going to look at his face as he looks concerned. Instead of that, it's a long shot from across the street, and it's like he starts putting the hose away. Yeah. You know, he's just gathering up the hose and moving it back towards the house. And I don't know why I just thought of that as like, oh, I, I like that. It's the closest thing to Better Call Saul that we've watched yet in this spinoff <laughs> challenge. Yeah. Closer even than Barnaby Jones, because Barnaby Jones is the genre piece that Better Call Saul is, but Barnaby Jones is a one-and-done, wrap-up-a-storyline in an episode show, and Knott's Landing is, like Better Call Saul, not designed to give you too much in one episode. Yes. No, for sure. And spending a certain amount of time with the character, coming in to their house and kind of putting down their keys or whatever before something happens or stopping to gather up the hose at the end of a scene. Part of that is just the slow-paced nature of television from that era, but part of it is also that it is a television drama that is going to give you an hour of a long right. story. Right. So yeah, in that sense, I was thinking, oh yeah, this is actually closer to Better Call Saul than than any of the stuff we've watched thus far. That does yeah. not mean I, I liked it anywhere near as much, but I could sort of understand how people watched these right. shows. I had this vague curiosity myself, and in fact... The YouTube link that I watched instantly started going to the next episode. Yeah. Um, and that gave me this little, oh, maybe I'll watch the next episode to see what happens. Then I was like, no, wait, I'm not going to watch Nuts Landing. <laughs> From the beginning, 14 years worth? Right. Well, I think that, yeah, if this had been shot with a bunch of cool camera angles and filmmaking ideas, and if I had found the uh, actors appealing and good, most of them, uh then, yeah, it would be right next door to Better Call Saul, uh, but it didn't have those things. Now, uh, Karen Allen was great. She has a very enjoyable, uh, natural acting style uh, where she just doesn't look like she's acting, and everybody else kind of looks like they're doing an 80s style of acting. 
Uh, so I loved Karen Allen, but she's not really a regular. She plays Sid's daughter, Annie, who is an out-of-control teen who is here to visit for a couple of weeks, and she uh, has to uh, contend with her stepmom, Michelle Lee, and uh, the whole thing is about whether, you know, Michelle is telling Sid, you've got a controller and, and uh, you've got to uh, talk to her, and he's always saying, I can't do anything with her, or I haven't, I don't know, I don't know how he excuses himself, but he hasn't figured out how to, how to deal with her and be a good father to her, and so it's just a mess, and so Karen Allen is this uh, uh, <laughs> crazy caricature of an out-of-control teen who's just like constantly pushing the buttons of adults and trying to make out with adults and trying to uh, uh, say shocking things right in front of adults, and she's just a, a bad girl. There's a subplot where she's a bad influence on the other Fairgate kids, or at least the daughter, Diana, and there's a scene where they come back, and it's the cartoon version of, like, drunk teenagers coming back. They're singing Row, Row, Row Your Boat, I think. Yes. The, uh, Annie's driving, and she runs into uh, the other car parked in the driveway, and as they get out, the kids are kind of in their own world, and they're not really paying attention to the parents that are admonishing them. Uh, Diana, the younger daughter, gets spanked by her dad in front of everybody. Right. And the mom says, you hit the wrong girl. But in that scene, there was a weird moment. While, while Karen is reading uh, uh, Sid the Riot Act about not disciplining his daughter, Annie, who has now obviously influenced their younger daughter to go to the beach at night and get drunk and come back and, you know, acting like a loon. Uh, there's a moment that, like, the girls are in the background hosing off, getting the sand off of their feet, I guess. Yeah. Diana, the younger daughter, says something that then makes the makes Karen turn back to Sid and say, see what Annie's done, you know. Uh Our 15-year-old went swimming at night in the Pacific Ocean with a belly full of whiskey. Luckily, she came home. I don't want to be less lucky the next time. And it took me forever. I replayed it so many times. I don't know if you heard that line or remember, but I think what Diana says is, I think Annie's dynamite. Oh. (laughs) I missed that line, and... and, uh... But I, th- I think that makes perfect sense that, yes, that would be the nightmare thing to, to hear. The drunk older daughter just took the younger naive daughter to the beach in the middle of the night, got her drunk. Nobody knew where they were. They could have drowned out there. Who knows? Uh, brought her home. And now the younger daughter is saying the older daughter is dynamite. And so, yes, you don't want to hear her like actually voice right out loud. This is my new hero. You don't think if she was like, suck my c***t mom and dad, that would have been worse? <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe, but, you know, uh, it would have, uh, I don't think that would have gotten past the censors. I did like this one uh, exchange, at least how it was written, uh, between Michelle Lee and Karen Allen. Michelle Lee, again, is the stepmom. Karen Allen is the out-of-control teen. Uh, Karen Allen is leaving in the middle of the night, leaving the house. Michelle Lee says... You can't leave in the middle of the night. Uh, Karen Allen says, uh, don't tell me you're afraid for me. And Michelle Lee says, I'm afraid for the night. (laughs) Uh, I liked that bit of writing. However, they kind of tossed it out and glossed over it too quickly. They didn't give it any snap or performance. And so I was like, oh, that was good on paper. Like when you're talking about Karen Allen kind of having this energy that is infectious. You can see why she's a movie actress. Especially when you put her in a scene with Joan Van Ark, who plays Valene. They become friends, and they end up going to the beach. 
and they have a scene together where, yeah, you can see Karen Allen's movie star quality acting put up against uh, Joan Van Ark's very television style of acting. She has this childish simplicity that's supposed to be that she comes from Texas and she's here in California and she seems a little overwhelmed. But the way they have her reacting to being at the beach for the first time was just the innocence of a child running around kind of giggling and kicking in the waves while the theme song from the show swells up underneath it. Mm -hmm. Um, That scene was so corny and so cheesy. And what Karen Allen was bringing to it was a little more grounded. Right, right. But I didn't see... Val as quite so childish as you, uh, but I want to talk about the beach scene. I didn't feel any particular uh, connection to the show as we were watching along, and maybe it's 40 minutes in or something. I'm like, oh, this is all right. I see. Okay, why people watch it if you like soaps. That's that's fine, but not, not for me. But then I uh, uh, saw the beach scene, and it snuck up on me. I w- was moved by that. Um just, I think it's just seeing anybody on their first time at the beach, especially really more so an adult who is is now going to play like a kid in the waves because they've never been to the beach before. Uh, and the theme song is that kind of old 80s theme where you can uh, make all different versions of, uh, you know, a sad version and a dramatic version and a silly version for whatever purpose you need and they put a a a, a nice you know moving version of the uh, theme under her running in the waves even though she's an adult it to me it felt uh like uh like a real thing i almost wanted to uh well up well okay that brings us to the question that we always ask which is was this spinoff challenger that we pulled from the spinoff globe was it a real competitor to Better Call Saul in terms of our affections? How did it fare? Uh, to me, it's not as good as Better Call Saul. It doesn't have the uh, uh, the wit, the subtlety, the filmmaking prowess. Uh, it's not as good. Like we said at the outset, that kind of soap is generally not for me if it doesn't have something a little more weird or interesting to sink your teeth into but uh i mean in that way that soaps can get you you know just i think there's something about human nature where automatically when you set up some characters and you just tell somebody a few little things about that character and then you show them a story and you say how oh that's that's how that wrapped up but we didn't really tell you how these other things wrapped up it's just human nature to say oh well i I am kind of wondering what what happens next week you know, and so then you start sucking people in, and so I could see, even though I was not particularly invested in this at the end, uh, I could see going, well, let me just watch next week, and that turns into two weeks and two years and two decades. What do you think? Oh, I agree with everything you said. All right, then. Hot talk. Hot talk.
Can't leave in the middle of the night. Don't tell me you're afraid for me. I'm afraid for the night. <laughs>